Imagine you picked up the most important book in the world, a book with words that can transform hearts. Now imagine it was full of highlights and notes in the margin and you could see how this book has transformed someone's heart. This is the Notable Podcast. These are the discussions of twin pastors who share their underlining and highlighting. Well, welcome back, everybody, uh, to the Notable Podcast. We are, um, we, it took us a while to get through the, the opening verses here in Habakkuk chapter two, but today we're going to, we're going to lop off, if we can say it that way, um, a pretty big section on, in Habakkuk chapter two. We're hoping to finish the chapter, so we're going to take Habakkuk chapter two, verses four to 20 this is the notable podcast so we're just not that we're anything special or notable in any kind of kind of way but we're just making notes in in the margins of our bibles here and um we do invite you to to support this ministry not free to us at least um so you can visit our website uh we also would love to have you give us some stars a bunch of them on on Spotify or, or podcast or wherever wherever you're getting this or YouTube even or on YouTube, um, and just let us know that you're there. That's an encouraging thing, and it helps get the word out to to everybody else. But Jonathan, take us into this. Like, what are what are we looking at today in these verses? Well, one thing I was reminded uh, just thinking about Habakkuk chapter two again is uh, maybe I can stir people of interest by just pointing at the text itself. There are two, the whole section is incredibly poetic and we'll talk about that, but there's two, what I'll call almost hymnic interludes uh, in between the major genre, which is cursing. We'll talk more about that in a second. Uh, you get verse 14. This is just very hymnic, beautiful. It says, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And that's verse 14. And then you have this, this, this next um, sort of hymnic interlude as well. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. And it is, um, I just want to make the suggestion that what you see here is um, a buttoning up, a beginning of a buttoning up of Habakkuk's spirituality, where before uh, he's angry, he's complaining, and we talked about that um, quite toxically. All of a sudden now, uh, we see Habakkuk coming into a very worshipful, adoring um, relationship with God, and you and you see him burst out um, in that kind of incredible poetry here. And so this is this is a helpful introduction because now hopefully you're you're saying to yourself as a listener, I, boy, I, I'd I'd really like to get there. <laughs> I wanna I want to be in that place with God. I want to be in that place in life spiritually and emotionally. How do I get there? And the answer, it, the answer is Habakkuk chapter two. He is Habakkuk is responding to what he receives here, and um, so incredible, incredible content here 
that that can heal you, um, that can minister to you in, in incredible ways. Here, God is ministering in yet another way um, to our to our suffering and our hardship, which which which, by the way, um, that should help all of our listeners suffering. The Bible doesn't say one thing about suffering. It says many things about suffering. And we are we are taking those various ideas and we're turning them as a diamond. We're looking at all the different facets. So if if you think there's one answer that the Bible has to suffering, um, that you're probably hurting yourself and others emotionally uh, and spiritually, where the Bible here has a, a, a highly nuanced, um, very complete, holistic response to um, the very real suffering in our lives. And, and we're gonna take a, a look at another facet of that today. And it's very, very, very healing. Incredibly healing. And the what's so interesting about this particular um, text here in Habakkuk um, is how the suffering is healed. Like how does, Habakkuk is gonna be brought to a very deep, spiritual and physical place where he is just silent like he's he just shuts up like that's how the chapter ends and how does he get there it's through cursing it's actually through cursing and like you, some people have called these um you got five of them some people have called them maledictions which is the opposite of beatitude some people have called them cursitudes um no matter what at, at the end of the day what this is is we've got a bunch of people cursing, and not in the not in the sense of the the four letter word, you know, with people who are angry little people with a limited vocabulary. That's usually um, how I think about, uh, you know, those, those that kind of language. This is actually real cursing, and cur cursing truly does come with power. So. Um, I was just talking about cursitudes, Jonathan, and I just, I wanted to share an anecdote. Uh, I was in the Holy Land and standing in a place called Capernaum, it's a New Testament city, and Jesus had cursed Capernaum in his day. And it had looked, when I was there, like a bomb had gone off, like this, Jesus had put a curse on it and you can see the power in that it it's amazing how people um often get more concerned about cursing from like voodoo i don't know if you've run into that jonathan in your ministry or like someone comes to you and says someone has put a curse on me um and i always work through that with people um in prayer and through the word of god but People seem so much less concerned when when the Lord, the, the Almighty, Omnipotent Creator of heaven and earth, puts a curse on someone. And here, that's exactly um, what happens. This is these are curse words, and we wanted to look at this really in three ways. Jonathan, we talked about we want to look at the consolation of curse words, which is an odd thing to talk about, but there's so much uh, that consoles us when we hear a curse word. And it did that for Habakkuk. Also, the poetry of curse words, like how beautiful they are, which again seems counterintuitive. And then finally, we'll look at how curse words actually bring us to um, silence. 
in the presence of God. So those those three words. Now, before we get into it, I just wanted to notice this about who is speaking the curse words. So this is a, this is a very interesting dialogue that happens here. God is still speaking in chapter two, and you can see that with the quotation marks, at least in the editorialized NIV in these verses. But I do want you to notice that that the Lord says this in verse six, will not all of them taunt him with ridicule and scorn saying, woe to him. So there, there's a question here is who is who is actually speaking the woes? Who's saying the cursitudes, the maledictions? And the answer is God is, but he's doing it as a report. Okay. Um, and what, what we have here is a bunch of dead people rising up um, against the Babylonians and saying, hey, God raised us up again, and now we're speaking curse words on you. So this is really bad news. This is this is a rest. This is like Shakespeare before Shakespeare. Um, the the people who you treated the worst in your life, the people that you destroyed, and we're going to see what the Babylonians did to them, rise up again, and they speak in in the name of God. Um, God reports it that these people are cursing. And um, so it's really, uh, um, there's a lot of tension in that, a lot of beauty in that. And um, uh, it must, it, it's quite a moment in the book of the back, quite a moment. So let's get into, or Jonathan, you wanted to say, I think, something about that. Well, the one, one thing that I want to say about that is, I think it is important to realize that there's great continuity here between the Old Testament and the New Testament. While for sure in the Old Testament, this is a this is a whole biblical genre, the, the imprecation, the woe, um, the announcement of woes. And you find it in Jeremiah and then you find it in Isaiah. But the, the greatest <laughs> prophet of woe of all was, of course, Jesus Christ. He's in the Gospels. We hear him proclaim woes. And and, and you said that so. What we don't want to do when we listen to this is is posit some kind of difference between who the Lord is in the Old Testament and who the Lord is in the New Testament, and so this can this should round out and help us understand who Jesus is better, because it's Jesus in that in in the New Testament as we've said who um, in in the biblical as the greatest prophet of all is um, also. He's he's a prophet of law and gospel, of woe and comfort. And so as we move through Habakkuk, this is a wonderful chance for us to, as Christians, think out um, a theology of woe and, and, and cursing and imprecation. And so here we go. Yeah, here we go. So the first thing that I wanted to just point out as we as we read these woes, and we're not going to read the whole section here. It's just, it's, it's a little bit too long, but we will, as we refer to the verses, we will um, read just bits and pieces of it. I just wanted to point out this, that, that what we've got here are, are five woes. Uh, and you can, you can got them verse six, verse nine, verse 12, verse 15. Um, they, they are scattered throughout throughout the verses and um so the way that this is set up is you got three woes in a row and then sort of this song of praise that kind of um 
encapsulates part one of the woes. And then you have woe um, four and five. And then again, and, and, uh, and, uh, and then again, Habakkuk lifts up his voice um, in praise. Each of the woes is, is framed. Um, there's a little bit of a pattern to it, but Habakkuk often beautifully and, and poetically breaks the pattern. But first of all, he always speaks the woe, and then he gives the reason why that um, this woe is going to come come down on them. And then he and then he talks about what I'm going to call the agent of justice, the agent of justice. Um, and each time there's there's different agents of justice, and I want to look at that with you just a little bit. And then he gives the reason why. Um, the reason why for you have so for example in verse eight for you have shed human blood you have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them so he's um there's a it's formulaic these woes in many ways are, are formulaic but habakkuk's not afraid to break the formula and come out of it um and what i want to just point out here in the middle of that formula are these agents of justice i'm going to call them the agents of justice so here's one here's the first one this is um so Habakkuk comes with this woe. He says, woe to you, woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion. How long must this go on? And now here are the agents of justice. Will not your creditors suddenly arise? Will they not wake up and make you tremble? Then you will become their prey. So what we have here is these people who are just who are just taking and extorting money, wealthy people becoming ever richer and taking from the poor. Saint Augustine said this that um the masses, the 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 wealthy think that that what they should do is put all of their stuff and their gold in banks and barns. And like that's the safest place to put it. But Saint Augustine said no, that they, they couldn't be more wrong. The safest place to put their stuff and their gold is in the bellies of the poor. Because if you don't put in the bellies of the poor, they will rise up for you against you. They will rise up. And um, this is what we might call biblical social justice. And I'm not saying it's right or wrong for the poor to do this. It's just that Habakkuk is just giving this report. This is what's going to happen. Um, this biblical social justice will come down on you. So one one of the ways that one of the agents of justice is actually that the wrong people will rise up against you. And you need to fear that, uh, Habakkuk said. I don't know if you wanted to say anything on that. I got it. I wanted to show at least two more agents of justice, though. Well, it's uh, just to show this. Uh, wow. That, that proverb, it's, it's a wonderful the artistry is so beautiful and I'm getting ahead to our second part, but that proverb there is actually a zinger that reminds me of the American revolution. There mm -hmm. people are being built and people rose up and uh, the United States is the result. So uh, yeah, it's true. Yes, and so each of these 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 maledictions we said we said these five of them have have a different agent. There's another agent um, in the second malediction where it says, "Woe to him who builds his house with by unjust gain, setting its net on high, to escape the clutches of ruin, 
you have plotted the ruin of many people, shaming your own house and forfeiting your life. And here, now here's the agent of justice. The stones of the wall will cry out and the beams of the woodwork will echo it. So all of a sudden, walls get a voice and beams have a voice. Um, what is this? The, the way that I interpret it, and I, if, if someone wants to interpret it a different way, that's okay. But the way I interpret it is that this is the conscience. This is the conscience. So this is this is the rich person sitting in their house um, with their gold encrusted toilet lid, and and they're saying, "I I wronged people to be where I am today," and it testifies against them, and their conscience is not at ease. This is this is the um, this is the whole Edgar Allan Poe Telltale Heart, where um, the floorboard was crawling, crying out. Um, was it possible? It's what Edgar Allan Poe. Was it possible? They heard not. Almighty God, no, no. They heard. They suspected. They knew. They were making a mockery of my horror. And this I thought. And this I think. But anything was better than this agony. So this is the agony of the conscience that, that the beams. And the walls are crying out and testifying that you did wrong. This is one of the agents of justice. Well, that's the second one. There's a third agent of justice that I wanted to look at in the fourth malediction. So the Lord is um, um, ratcheting up his rhetoric here. And so now he says, woe to him. Um who drinks, uh, who gives drink to his neighbors, pouring it from the wineskin till they are drunk so that he can gaze on their naked bodies. You will be filled with shame instead of glory. Now it is your turn. Drink and let your nakedness be exposed. And here it is. The cup from the Lord's right hand is coming around you. So now we have, uh, it's not the social masses that are rising up. It's not the conscience or the walls or the beams testifying against you. Now it is a cup coming from, directly from God. So you might say that this is immediate justice. Drink it down. The Lord is going to, he's going to um, bring this down on you. You deserve it um, because of what you've done to, to these people. And so, um, and we can do more of this, but each each of these maledictions offers um, one of these agents of justice. And, and to me, that's incredibly comforting. It's incredibly comforting. Why? Because, because what a lot of survivors of injustice or trauma or whatever word you want to call it, what they really need and, or what they think they need is to see, to see the perpetrators and the violators go down and go down hard. And what Malachi, or excuse me, what Habakkuk is saying, sometimes you're not going to see that. It will happen because God is just. But sometimes you're going to have to wait till social upheaval comes. You're never going to see the rich thief um, suffering from his conscience testifying against him. You may not even see the great day of the Lord and the justice that he will bring, but he will bring it. And that the, these words testify and console those who have been trampled on and violated and sinned against. Yeah, in this part of the Bible, 
sits in a nest of the the rest of scripture and to your comments remind me of ecclesiastes where um in ecclesiastes um there's a ministry to um people who look at things only externally and they can't see uh, for example somebody might be upset that there seems to be injustice in the way that wealth is distributed in the world and one of the responses to that there's more than one response to that in ecclesiastes but one of the responses to that in ecclesiastes is that god makes it so that some people can enjoy what they have and some people can't and i'm always reminded of that like when i watch the housewives shows for example there you there you see people who are incredibly affluent and yet there's at least as the show depicts it very little enjoyment of it and it, this is um this is helpful to see that God um, is always bringing justice in his way, in his time. Sometimes we see it, sometimes we don't. And in that sense, it becomes an issue, an issue of faith. Yeah. So that's like all of that. If we can button up this conversation, like this is when we look at, at curse words and they come down on enemies, they console us. They console us. And, and that's a real, a real important thing for us to get as we read a section of the Bible like this. The second thing we wanted to talk about is the poetry. Well, don't don't quite story. go there yet. Oh, I, you're not ready yet. Okay. Yeah, okay. I, I I think we have to talk about. Oh, you have more, don't you? Even even that position, even that position, like we're saying, curse words are 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 consoling because I can hear in even in my own. I know so many people who. When they think about God's judgment, it's it's only something that um, feels very scary to them, and and we just made the claim that it's comforting, which is pretty counterintuitive, actually. <laughs> and so I I do want to support that just a little bit I, and move into that a little bit more. When I preached the sermon, it was back in the summer. Uh, I remember talking to a 14 year old boy and he asked me he was just trying to make like conversation with me he said what are you preaching on this week and i said god's judgment and um he said oof <laughs> and that's a pretty typical reaction i think oh god's judgment oof and so a couple couple things here that i want to say in response to that when when I talk to people, there's there's two two common things that I that I hear people struggle with. On the one hand, and I think this is a pretty common um, common experience for spiritual people in the West right now, is you hear people complain about God's inactivity against um, violence and sin and brokenness. So. And you have these kind of conversations regularly where somebody is upset at God because God isn't doing enough of whatever it is. And and some to, to the point that some people are like, God, God must not be good or or God doesn't exist. God isn't doing enough or anything about evil um, and brokenness in their opinion. And so that's one problem I hear. And then the second problem I hear hear about 
is actually the exact opposite. And this is this, this is a tension that I'm trying to point out. And, and it's it's an it's a it's a great irony. So on the one hand, people are upset God isn't doing anything. And then on the other hand, people get upset when God does something. And they say, Oh, God is, you know, God isn't good. He's he's so harsh and and he's judgmental. <laughs> and so the the point is you can't it's if you think about it, God can't win with people. Either he's either he's bad because he doesn't do enough, or or he's bad because he actually did something about it. And the point the point I'm trying to make is it's not God's fault. God is good, and God hears every cry, and God acts appropriately every single time. Um, and and so I'm just trying to turn the turn the it, it, it's it, Travis Scott was was one who made me realize that I was having that same experience too. He, wrote, he was a writer and he, when he was pointing that out. The problem he's, he pointed out isn't God. The problem is, is our hearts and our misunderstandings about God. And here we, here we are reminded that the Lord is gracious and compassionate. He's slow to anger and abounding love, just like he says he is. But also here we're especially reminded that he does not let the guilty go unpunished. And so we can't, this is what I'm trying to say, it's just a little apologetic for God. We can trust his judgment. We can absolutely trust his judgment, whether he's acting or not, whether we can see it or not, uh, we can trust God to take care of it. And so that, there you go. There's my little apologetic for God. Uh, I hope it's helpful. Right. I love it. I, I think it's really helpful. I, I, in my experience, I hear those types of things all the time. God is too harsh. Like I can't believe in this old Testament God. And then on the other side, why doesn't God do anything? Why is there so much suffering in the world? And um, so God does, God doesn't ever win. We always find ourselves in a place to judge him. For some reason, we think that we can judge him in the way that he runs the world. And it turns out that, as we're saying today, he's the one that actually judges us. And I don't want to go too far into that because <laughs> we have. And we want, and, and, and just to wrap up this consolation, we actually not only want, and this is a little bit of a segue here, we not only want, we need him to judge us. We we need we cannot we cannot live in a world. We actually cannot live in a world where God would take his hands off of it and allow people to do whatever they want. That would be a horrible, far worse than it is right now. Mm. Right. Now, one of the things that this these verses give us is what one scholar put it this way is is poetic justice. And that when I read that, I was like, oh, that's that's really well said. And it's poetic for two reasons, for two reasons. Um, it's poetic, first of all, because this is straight up poetry. And like this, this whole this whole section is it's incredibly beautiful, poetic. There is literally assonance and alliteration and parallelism. There's even like this 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 section of the Bible is so thoughtful that you can you can divide sections of it 
And on on one half of it, there's 71 words. And on the other, 71 words, like down to the number of words perfectly worked out. Like this is beautiful, beautiful, iconic poetry, poetic about justice, judgment, poetic justice. So there's that. That's the first reason. The second reason um, that this is poetic is because he gets it right. Um, I, there's poetry. So I actually looked up the origin of that phrase, po poetic justice, because it's it's really entered into and become an idiomatic phrase for us. But what it, what it originally meant and what it needs to continue to mean is that there's there's a kind of beauty to it that um, if someone does something wrong, um, that they are punished in in accord and equal way with what they did. So it's poetic. And this is the difference. This is not karma. Some people would think, well, that's karma. Well, no, it's not karma because karma is an impersonal force. The difference between poetic God's just divine judgment and 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 um karma would be that it's a personal force like god actually cares and he gets involved that's the christian we like we have a father god a redeemer god a consoling god father son and holy spirit not an impersonal force but instead god directly gets involved and he brings about poetic justice and you can see that in here everybody gets their their just deserve um so I'll I'll give the most extreme example in the text where this is and I read this before, but I think this is so important. The um well in verse sixteen and seventeen it says, um, and back up to verse fifteen too, woe to him who gives drink to his neighbors, pouring it out from the wineskin till they are drunk, so that he can gaze on their naked bodies. This is sexual exploitation. This is this is the worst kind of like shame. And so it says you will be filled with shame instead of glory. Now it is your turn. Drink and let your nakedness be exposed. So what they did to other people, that will happen to them. The cup of the Lord's right hand is coming around to you and disgrace will cover your glory. The violence you have done to Lebanon will overwhelm you and your destruction of animals will terrify you. So, um, you have shed human blood. You have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. So in in the verses, what you have is um, a description of, of the injustice, the sin that they committed. And then in equal measure, they get it poured back into their life as God's judgment, God's justice. It's poetic. Absolutely poetic. And And just to fill in a little bit more what that means, what we're saying about God's judgment is it is um, retributive and punitive so that what was what somebody's taken from somebody else is taken from them. So it's punitive. Um, that's that's a big deal. And it's also reciprocal. So it, there's there's an absolute equality with it. And I can maybe be helpful just by going through the five walls and showing this real quick, just kind of paraphrasing them. In the first wall, the plunders, the plunders get plundered. In the second wall, um, it says that a house built on blood and violence um, 
will by blood and violence be lost. The third oil says that a city built um, boasting in themselves so they would be remembered and known says that they will be remembered and known for losing and being judged by God. <laughs> the fourth oil says that um, they force the nations to get drunk and get stripped before them. And so they're going to they're going to have have to drink and be ashamed and shamed before the nations. And then finally, the fifth wall says um, that they trusted in idols and they're going to be shown how empty their idols are before the Lord. And so they're, they're both punitive and reciprocal, um, these woes as they come home to nest. And that's what makes them poetic. They, they do meet out um, exactly what um, the perpetrators meted out. And, you know, this people need this, Jonathan. Like I, we need this. We need to know that um, the wrongs that are committed against us um, are seen by God and 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 meted out. Like um, you 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 see the headlines. Like you told me a story about some woman who was um, stealing um, a numbing agent from her hospital. Was it fentanyl or something like that? Oh yeah. And then the surgical patients would scream as they'd go through these procedures and nobody knew why, but this woman had replaced the numbing agent with saline water. And um, it was discovered and the nurse didn't even lose her license. That's what you said. And it's just, it's not right. It's, it's unjust. Um, or like you see these, you see these, the headlines everybody's trying to work this out like what do we do and i don't want to get too contemporary but a war is happening and you see that one side is attacked first and then the other side responds and everybody's saying it's not right it's unjust the response went too far all of these um different things um so what we can trust and and it's actually the only thing that we can trust is exactly this, that God always gets it right. And that, that right there is, it's really helpful for us. It's helpful for us. It's how we have peace in life. And, and even going further, it's, it's how we're enabled to, to love. So um, there's a, there's a writer by the name, theologian by the name of Miroslav Wolf. And he said, Soon you would discover that it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence corresponds to God's refusal to judge. If you unpack what he's saying there, um, human nonviolence doesn't, he's saying, doesn't correspond to God's refusal to judge. It, it actually corresponds to God's promise to judge. And the reason why we can respond nonviolently without taking revenge into our own hands is because of our faith that God is going to handle it. And, we're, and we need to let God handle it. That's the, that's the point so far. I want to make an additional point in a second. We need to let God handle it because if we handle it, we will um, get it wrong. <laughs> we're going to get it wrong. By the way, I'm not commenting on, on the court system or um, international law when it comes to wars or anything like that. Um, God has given the government the right and responsibility to pursue justice. That's a different, that's a different 
uh, arena. I, I'm only talking about um, those who aren't like like myself. I, I'm I'm not in any kind of government system. I have I have no legal authority to pursue any kind of justice or anything like that. Um, and I'm, I'm guessing that's probably true of most of us who are listening to this. And that's the only thing I'm ministering to right now. If you're in if you're in government and you're in the legal system, you not only have the right, you have the responsibility to pursue justice on the half, on behalf of victims. And that's that's something else um, entirely. Um, but here, um, in if you're somebody like me in my position, I don't have that kind of authority or that right. It hasn't been granted to me by God. And so for me, I'm in a position where I have to trust those who God has legitimately appointed and God himself is the agent. And we've talked about the different agencies that have been pointed out here where I need to, I need to let it go and let God be the one who's going to get justice for me either here on earth or ultimately um, on judgment day. And even, I would even say this, even, even if you do look at the legal system, which we should be so thankful for as much as it works, we can also recognize that the legal system is imperfect. We do get wrongful convictions. And so ultimately we do, we're, all of us are left um, ultimately trusting God and trusting him. And if we don't, and we try to get justice by ourselves, this is very problematic because what, what happens with us is we don't know the whole, all the circumstances. We get too angry. Um, we, re we react heatedly, disproportionately, all these kinds of things, and we end up in a vicious circle of violence. And so, and that's Miroslav Volt's point, is um, we need to trust God's judgment, and then we won't act, and we can live in peace. And I'll point this out, that this, this teaching here that we're looking at here is being given to a bunch of people who had just gone through um, a whole bunch of war crimes, Timothy. Babylon's come through and done horrible things. They've gone way too far. And um, Habakkuk was grappling with, with the difficulty of that spiritually, and we've already talked about that. But now God is giving this teaching and he's saying, look, justice is coming. God's judgment is real. And this, this alone would, would have enabled these people who are going to now be exiled to Babylon. So they're going to have to live with the people who, are, who had perpetrated these injustices. Imagine that. Um, the very people who would harm them, they have to live with them. This is what allows them to live in peace and, and to pray for the prosperity of Babylon and to love the people who are there. And so this is this is so empowering when we see God is going to do this. It's going to be poetic. It's going to be reciprocal. It's going to be retributive. God is saying, I got this. And then we can say, OK, God has got it. I don't have to. I can get down to the business of loving and blessing people because that's why God has me here. And so God's judgment um, is in, instead of saying, oh, no, this this is so bad. One of the aspects of it is we can say this is good because when we see God is going to get it right, we might not, not, and it enables me to be the person God has called me to be. I am not an agent of, of justice. I'm an agent of love um, and grace and truth 
And um, I want to bless the people around me. And enables us to be Christians. There's such freedom in that. It's so, Jonathan, like we were saying, it's so freeing. It's just so freeing to see this this poetic justice that that God gives and know that he's going to get just right. Um, and we can, like you said, we can live out our lives then in grace and, and in truth. There's one last um, point that I think we need to drill down into here as we think about curse words. And it's, it's really how um, the Lord uses curse words then to bring Habakkuk to this place of worship, to this place of silence, to this, this place of repose, you might say. And um, it is, so if, if we just take these words and, and, and back them off for a second, really we've relayed to them as, as victims where we've seen oppressors and persecutors come at us and we see God bring them down. And that's one, and it's appropriate. It's an appropriate way for us to relate to these words sometimes but we also need to recognize that we do not live our lives only in victimhood and that is not an accurate description of who we are uh, lutherans often talk about how we are saints and sinners we are uh we are um people who sin and we admit that and we are people who are sinned against we are victims and we are also perpetrators and so these words are actually um also very subversive so you have the habakkuk's preaching them and uh you can imagine people listening in and he names sins that they're actually committing in that moment right and um it's as if he casts uh, a dragnet and um, they get caught up in it as fish. And all of a sudden you realize that the, that the curse that's coming down to your enemies will also come down on you. And one, I heard one preacher say that good and evil cuts through the middle of every human heart. So no, none of us can imagine that we're only good and and we're the people that are always sinned against. That's never an accurate description of who we are. Or um, one scholar said the barb snagged the Jewish le leaders who heard it. So like it's it's like um, barbed wire and you get caught in it. What I'm really trying to say is that anyone who listens to these words who has violated God's holy will in any way. And this is where we have to get really quiet. That curse falls on us as well. I, I mean, you did, a, you did so many good things there. I want to point out one thing in the text and then just help people understand like the, how, to, how the rhetoric works here. It, um, there's ambiguity in the text in the sense that we are not explicitly told who's getting the judgments now it's also pretty clear like that it's against the babylonians but you realize upon closer inspection that there's enough ambiguity here that somebody 
you know, if, imagine you're hearing this this sermon as um as one of the people of God, and and um, Habakkuk stands up and he says, and God is going to get all of the sexually immoral people, and all the people go yay, and and God is going to get all the people who have ever um, worshipped idols, and all the people go yay, and then. <laughs> Um, and, and God is really going to get all those people who have damaged the environment. And everybody goes, yay. But then hopefully there's a thoughtful person who, who just, who all of a sudden they, they're cheering. Yay. God is taking all the Babylonians down. He's taking all these people down. And, and they stand there and they, and they swallow really hard and they go, uh-oh. <laughs> uh-oh. And that's where you do get this dramatic line from from Habakkuk, where it says, let all the earth, it does, you know, it's everybody, let all the earth be silent before him. It's be silent before him. And so before, before I got so much I want to say by way of application of this, but before we get there, I, I want to point out what I think is, is for us here in the West, the maybe the biggest reversal here. Because here we are, and in this podcast, we are um, intimately considering the topic of judgment, justice, um, woes, imprecations, curses, whatever you want to call them. And we've already said that one of the sad ironies is that when we deal with this topic, what ends up happening is instead of people considering the judgments of God, they take the, they take the opportunity to think about the judgments of God to judge him. That's what I find so interesting is, is God being fair here? Is God being right here? And, and so God, God is coming to us here and, he, and he's saying us, to us, I judge people. And what I, what I find in the modern West is um, people often say, no, I judge God. And so they look at the judgments of God and they, and they try to decide, and, and is he worthy or not? Is he good or not? And, and here's the point. Um, God here. In, in a certain sense, is going out of his way to point out, stop it. Y yes, I, 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 I am God, and I do judge justice right. And in fact, one, I haven't pointed this out so far, but, and I don't think you have either. We've talked about the, the perfect reciprocity of this, the, uh, the, the poiesis of this, um, how God gets it just right. But I, I want to point out that um, God is very fair when it comes to even what he is going to judge. Um, it's something I noticed as I was going through these, these five woes. If you, if you kind of comb through them, you can go through them from everybody's perspective. Normally, we, we're stuck on only one kind of justice, you know, and, and God is saying, I, I, I'm concerned about every kind of justice. So if you look at this, in verse 6, there's economic justice. Um, in verse 12, there's justice for the sanctity of human life. Um, in verse 15, there's justice when it comes to sin and, and human sexuality. Um, and then in verse 17, you have um, environmental justice. And sometimes you see these different kinds of justice who are cut off from each other and connected to certain platforms. But with God, he is, his judgment is comprehensive. It's, it's, it's holistic. He's looking at everything perfectly um, all the way around. Um, and so God, 
is saying, I, I deal with that, that evil. I'm, I'm taking care of all of it. I judge. And so we're starting, starting there. God is judging us and it's time for us to get quiet under that. Yeah, for I think you're giving a second reason to get quiet under it. Um, one to stop, just stop with judging God about what is it right for Him to respond in this way, in with equal justice, so to say, and equity. And the the second the second way would be is to not not let yourself escape from the judgment on your own, apart from Christ. Because you do deserve to have it fall on you. Like, um, the, Habakkuk too. Like, wh what is it that brings him to such a sense of quietness? And part of it, part of it is he, he needed to cry out, um, Lord have mercy. Because Habakkuk, Habakkuk, um, deserve to have this fall on him too and we do too like all everyone israel babylon like nobody gets to stand up there and act like they're pure and innocent and never done anything wrong and um so uh like I, it makes me think of romans like you paul said this <coughs> excuse me you who teach others do you teach yourself you who preach against stealing do you steal you who say that people should not commit adultery, you, do you commit adultery? You who boast in God's will, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? So, like, sometimes people, um, <laughs> they 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 claim so much, and they, and they, and they they lavish themselves and and sort of marinate in their victimhood, and what they fail to see is that they've done the same things. They've done the same things. And, and that's the time to get real quiet before God and let the only cry be, Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. And, and the other side of this, Timothy, there's two spiritual positions, and you named one of them, that this rips us out of. I, I think this is very healing for us to um, hear that, that the woes are directed at, at us, too. Because on the one hand, it it disallows us from from only claiming a status of victimhood. That's that's impossible, biblically speaking, to only stand in that place. There's only and been then, one that's ever been an innocent victim. Yeah, there, his name is Jesus. Yeah, only one. And on the other side of that, it also disallows us from proudly pointing the finger at all the other big bad people who deserve the curses of god um both of those people um are torn down from their place and call it pharisaism call it self-righteousness but one of the things that happens in a post-christian world is it becomes so easy um when you stand in the church to say look at all the bad people out there and, and to get proud and angry. Look at all those people in their sexual depravity. Look at all those people um, with all their injustice and, and all this stuff. And Habakkuk is the, what, what ends up happening is it, is it, is it catches us 
And all of a sudden we go, it's not just all those people out there. We have to swallow too. As, as Christians, we're a part of the problem. We can't, we can't make this cry. And the, and the turn then, the turn then is like you said, we look to Jesus. We look to Jesus. We don't. In the end, I said to the kids in chapel here one time, I said, do you really want God's justice? Think about that real hard. <laughs> and the answer is no. What we need is God's grace in Jesus Christ. We need the curse taken off. And we know that the New Testament teaches us that Jesus died on a, on a tree taking the curse for us. And so he suffered. Jesus is the one who suffered innocent, horrific violence for us. Jesus did. Think about this even. It was the Babylonians who came up with this idea that somebody should, somebody should die on a pole. They're the ones who start doing that. And Jesus is, is stripped naked on a pole. He's exposed. He's shamed in front of everybody. I'm trying to reference some of this poetry here. Um, he, he, this was done very artfully, very poetically, if you think about it. So famously, Jesus dies between two criminals. Jesus dies between two criminals. Why is that? It's like real life art so that we can't ever forget. And so we grasp in our hearts that Jesus died as a sinner, with sinners, for sinners, so that we aren't um, sinners to God. The judgment came to rest on Jesus. It found him. He suffered all the pangs of hell so that we could live quietly so that we could live uh, with quiet hearts and in peace, knowing that we stand in a, in a right place with God. It's this, the, it's what I'm saying, the judgment, the, the, this judgment brings us consolation. We said that um, here, I'm saying the judgment actually pushes us or draws us, to, to say it however you want it, to the gospel, to the gospel. It sends us back into our world, I would say, um, able to live with them, not, not above them, but forgiven, not with a chip on our shoulder about everything, but with, with a genuine joy in our hearts. We have been saved in the name of Jesus. That, I think that's so important, and, and I think it's exactly the place Habakkuk goes on in his world with, quiet before God. I just, maybe I think we're coming to the end of this episode, Jonathan. I just wanted to just recognize that this is, in a, in a lot of ways, this is a turning point in the book. I don't think it's a culmination of anything, but it is a turning point. Like earlier in the chapter, we have the uh, believer living by his faith. And now we hear the cursitudes come down. And and we see that God's going to deal with Babylon and, and deal with this big problem that, that Habakkuk wanted him to deal with. He and but Habakkuk realizes that that when if God's going to be just, that he's that justice needs to come down in every sinner. And so here's Habakkuk, and this is the way the chapter ends. Then the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before Him. That ends chapters one and two. And a lot of thing, a lot of uh, the emotional struggle of Habakkuk has been resolved now. So Habakkuk starts the book with a complaint. He is now out of words, right? Um, Habakkuk 
heart is not at rest at the beginning of the book. Now it is. He, he has come to this place where he truly is at peace because he sees God in his temple. It's a turning point, though, and there's a huge irony in this, and we have to leave this for the next episode, but he does not stay silent for long. <laughs> and in fact, he gets very verbose, you might say. And what pours out of him is a really a joyful song, a prayer that put, sort of puts the capstone. Um, he is so invigorated by this message in chapters one and two that um, silence lasts for a moment and he's lifted up in, in song then in, in, in worship and in joy. So um, that's what's coming. But these, these cursitudes, like I don't want to um, undersell them. These were so helpful for him spiritually to get him to where he needs to at least this place of silence. If you are moved and you want to support this ministry, please go to www.